Pontifax is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Mysteries. Pope Eugene, get out of here. Stop being a ghost. You can't stop being a ghost. That's rude. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 91, Pope Gregory II, or as you once referred to him, Gregory the Mouthy. Me? (laughs) (laughs) I knew you would have no memory of this. That's actually why I put in my notes, because when we were talking about Pope Gregory I... I uh, indicated that this was not the Pope Gregory who created the Gregorian chant. Mm. And so you decided that because Pope Gregory was the one who created it, that he would be henceforth known as the Mouthy. Oops. It's come back. I made a note for you. Thank you. <laughs> I have otherwise forgotten. You know, to be fair, when I went to look at my notes, I'm like, why have I written the Mouthy here? And then I had a little comment box next to his name and I clicked on it and said, Fry called him the Melfi. So this episode is going to mark some significant changes in the direction of the medieval papacy, and it's gonna be a big one. So first things first, one of these changes is that we are officially moving on to a new edition of the Liber Pontificalis. Oh yeah? We are now using the Lives of the Eighth Century Popes edition by Raymond Davis, and this one has footnotes and they are real and legitimate and useful footnotes i mean that doesn't mean that it's going to be any more accurate as a primary source but it means that some of the minutiae that gets mentioned is going to be a little bit easier to track down just as a note before we get into this episode as well a lot is about to happen gregory ii was a pope for Quite a while, with a lot of moving dynamics to his papacy, so we will be jumping around in the timeline a bit, because the best way to cover something like this is subject by subject. This is not strictly chronological. But we're going to start at the beginning, because that's the only place to start. Gregory was born in 669 in Rome to Marcellus and Honesta. We have names of the mother and father. This is always exciting. And they're not John. They're not John. They're Marcellus and Honesta. And the reason we know this is the family is a very wealthy and noble family. Gregory was born as Gregorius Sabellus, which would make him part of the same family we speculated Benedict II was from. That does sound like a part of your brain, though. It kind of does. Sabellus, it's like your cerebellum. But this also makes him the collateral ancestor of the famous Savelli family that would rise to prominence in the 13th century and give us several popes. And just because I threw that term out there, collateral ancestor is an ancestor that is part of the family, but not of a direct lineage, which of course will make sense for all our popes because they're not marrying and having children. Yes, I would hope not. That's hashtag scandal. Well, that doesn't mean it's not gonna happen, but (laughs) in his youth, Gregory already exhibited enthusiastic piety and a strong inclination to join the church, so he entered the clergy quite young and had a fairly prolific career. 
He began church service in the Scola Cantorum, which is the singing school slash papal choir, much like his potential ancestor, Pope Benedict II, who was so good at singing, you might remember. From there, he was made a subdeacon and then appointed to the position of Sassalarius by Pope Sergius I, and Sassalarius is a financial administrative position, where he was responsible for payments and the distribution of alms. According to Raymond Davis, this makes him the first named person recorded in the sources to have held this position in the church. Sucks for everybody else who wasn't named, though. Yeah, yeah. None of them were important enough. They don't matter. Then, sometime during the papacy of John VI and VII, he was promoted to deacon and placed in charge of the Vatican Library which is also particularly exciting, as we have not had any mention in the sources of any sort of caretaker or admin for the Vatican Library before. And it turns out, Gregory is also the first recorded named person to have held this role, too. Man, we're gonna get haunted by all these ghosts. The ghosts of librarians past. Right? They're just like, they want to be acknowledged. What this does tell us is that this is a pretty unconventional career path to the papacy because no other pope has been recorded to these positions before. But while he's all doing this, he's making his reputation as a highly intelligent man who represented the embodiment of a good cleric. The Liber Pontificalis says he was chaste, learned in divine scripture, eloquent and of resolute mind, a defender of the church establishment, and a strenuous adversary of its assailants. And these characteristics caught the attention of Pope Constantine around 710, who made Gregory his papal secretary. You're good at books, now you're my secretary. Also, you like the church. He's good at books, he's good at finances, and he is a good cleric. He's a perfect person for this role. Gregory then joins Constantine in 711 when he traveled to Constantinople to respond to Emperor Justinian to Nonos's summons over the Quinisex Council Canons. And wasn't murdered because he didn't get left behind. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's right, that's right. And he also plays a very pivotal role here. It's Gregory who does the majority of the negotiation on behalf of the Pope. And he scores enough diplomatic victories here that he satisfies the emperor without the pope having to submit to unorthodox canons, even if we don't precisely know what those diplomatic victories looked like, right? Like last week, we couldn't say what they actually concluded. We just know that Gregory did it all and made everybody happy. As the Liber Pontificalis puts it, when the Prince Justinian inquired of him about certain chapters, his excellent reply solved every disputed point. Clearly, Gregory is a diplomatic star, and returning home with the Pope after successful negotiations with the Emperor gave him all the reputation he needed. So when Pope Constantine died, Gregory was easily elected to be the next Pope in May of 715. And it was gonna be a busy papacy, and Gregory was prepared to put in the work. And the first thing that he decided to do was take up a task originally decreed by Pope Sicinius, which was to rebuild and fortify the walls of Rome. We discussed the reasoning for this in Pope Sicinius's very short episode, episode 89, which in short was Lombards and an increasing concern that there was going to be a Muslim incursion on Rome if they kept amassing territory the way that they have been. 
providing the city of Rome with proper protection was critical, and since Sicinius had died before any of the work had been started, Gregory now makes haste, beginning the rebuilding efforts at the Porta Tibertina. And he starts to make some really excellent progress for about a year on the walls, until October of 716, when the Tiber River flooded, bursting over its banks and causing a significant amount of damage. Dang, weather again? Yeah, yep. <sighs> some big weather. We had all those drought slash famine issues last time. And now we have too much water. The Liber Pontificalis tells us, The Tiber spread itself over the plains. It swelled in great spate and entered the port of Flaminia. Meanwhile, in some places, it even lapped over the city walls as it extended itself through the streets beyond St. Mark's Basilica, so that on the Via Lata, the river water rose up one and a half times a man's height. Oof. Yeah. The waters dispersed themselves from St. Peter's Gate to the Milvian Bridge, and the force of the river took it as far as near as the Remissa. It overturned houses and desolated fields, uprooting trees and crops. At that time, the greater part of the Romans could not even sow, which meant that great trouble was in store. For seven days, the water held Rome in its grip. So this is a very substantial flood. It flooded the entirety of the Campus Martius, which is now the most populated area of all of Rome, all the way to the foot of the Capitoline Hills. On the other side of the river, it came to the gates of St. Peter, which is a fairly substantial area. And Gregory S. Aldrate's book, Floods of the Tiber in Ancient Rome, uses one and a half a man's height, as recorded in the Liber Pontificalis, to approximate that the Campus Martius would have had about 2.5 meters, or 8 feet, of water throughout this whole time. Why are these Roman men short? Because it's the ancient world. Everybody was short. <laughs> they would have been very small. Like five feet would have been a very, very like above average for a man. This clearly halts the building efforts of the Roman city walls. And Gregory held litanies in St. Peter's for the protection of the city until the water subsided. I'm going to send you a map of Rome here. So if you look at basically the top left corner of this map. You see where the Vatican is, San Angelo Castle, Temple of Hadrian, Pantheon, yeah. Campus Martius. Why does the river do that? What's with this sharp turn? That's just the Tiber for you. It's a very powerful river. And this is always right here where it says San Angelo Castle, which is Castello San Angelo. This has always been a very strong hold part of the river. So they've banked that up. Fair. That's why it does such a sharp turn. But it went over. It went all the way up to St. Peter's, which is this sort of... If you look at what is declared as the Vatican, it's the shape in the middle. So it came all the way through the Vatican Hill up to those gates. Wow. That's a lot of water. Clearly, the next task was a massive restoration initiative in the city. He made sure that work on the walls continued, but it's now like an afterthought because restoration has to be a focus. And since restoration was a focus, Gregory also started working on restoring church properties that had been destroyed, even those that had been destroyed before the flood. He's like, if I'm going to rebuild, I'm going to rebuild it right. 
Most notably, Gregory restored the monastery established on Mount Cassino by St. Benedict of Nursia, which is the famous Monte Cassino monastery. Mount Cassino? Sounds like a Vegas attraction. It does sound like an attraction, but Monte Cassino is a very, very important monastery. I don't think they would approve of gambling. The original abbey had been destroyed in 584 by invading Lombards, but this is a site of incredibly symbolic value for the Catholic Church because it's the first monastery to be under the rule of St. Benedict, which of course is the foundation of monastic orders as we know it. Yeah, that's the monk man. Yeah, so it's a big deal. So Gregory then also took a page from Pope Gregory I and converted his family home into a monastery after the death of his mother. She lived well into his papacy, but when she passed away, he turned it into a monastery. And this monastery became known as St. Agatha's, but as Raymond Davis tells us in the Liber Pontificalis footnotes, there's no historical consensus about which St. Agatha this is supposed to be, because there are several. He also restored the roof of Santa Croce in Jerusalem and founded a new church, the Sant'Oistachio, which, by the way, is also the name of a wild coffee place in Rome, very near the Pantheon in Piazza di Sant'Oistachio, where Jordan had one of the best coffees of his life on our wedding trip. We were told to go there by someone we met who was a super, super foodie, and it was this Thick iced coffee drink that he still talks about. So if you're going to Rome, go to this place, Sant'Oistachio. Pretty crazy. It's also right near Gamarelli's, which is where the Pope gets his socks. Socks and coffee. Socks and coffee. That, that was our day. We went and we got the coffee and then we got the socks. <laughs> so then on April 5th, 721, Gregory held a synod with 22 bishops and various Roman clerics to tighten up on clerical discipline and morality. This synod produced 17 canons, which are unusual. Most of them deal with marriage prohibitions, but some are very specific and personal. The canons on marriage prohibited any man to marry the widow of a priest, a deaconess, a nun, their godparent, the wife of his brother, his niece, his stepmother, his daughter-in-law, his first cousin, anyone he was related to, or the wife of anyone he was related to. That's a long list. There is also a prohibition on marrying any widow, so I'm not sure why widow of a priest requires special consideration. Other canons prohibit on pain of anathema, as quoted from A History of the Councils of the Church by Carl Joseph von Heffele, A man who ravishes a virgin to whom he was not betrothed in order to take her as his wife, even if she were to consent, or a man guilty of superstitious usages, and anyone who violates the earlier commands of the apostolic church in regard to the olive yards belonging to it. One of those things is not like the other things. Someone is messing around in the church olive garden. (laughs) I don't feel like that's um same as like ravishing, ravishing a, a woman. <laughs> well, they're really upset. How do you feel about these olive trees? Well, the, and it doesn't even specify what sort of commands it's talking about. It just says violates the earlier commands. So 
They have tried to prohibit whatever's going on in this these olive yards. <laughs> what are they doing to the olives? I looked and I found nothing, unfortunately, because that would have been a great thing to be able to expound on. Also, the 14th through 16th canons are specifically calling out and anathematizing a couple. Hadrian, who married the deaconess Epiphania, Epiphania herself, and whoever helped her to marry. They really don't like this. They do not like this and the fact that she's gotten married, and so they're just going to anathematize anybody who had anything to do with it. The final canon anathematized, quote, any cleric who lets his hair grow. And this time, I did a little digging. I could have skipped over it for the sake of time, but we enjoyed the Celtic tonsure discussion so much and had so many engagements with listeners over it, I figure, let's just cover it. Tonsures are becoming a big deal now. In the 7th and 8th centuries, tonsures were not only exclusive to monastic orders, and there was also a clerical tonsure that was in use for all clerics. And the receiving of a tonsure was an important clerical rite. The patriarch of Constantinople, Germanus, wrote on the importance of the tonsure and said, The tonsure of the priest's head and the circle cut away in the midst of the hair is in place of the crown of thorns worn by Christ. The double circlet marked out by the hair on the head sets forth in semblance the honored head of Apostle Peter, which when he was set forth to preach the gospel of his lord and master, was shorn in mockery by them who were disobedient to the word. But the head that was so shorn Christ did bless, and made dishonor be unto him for honor, and mockery be unto him for glory. Any cleric who was not maintaining his tonsure was essentially not honoring his commitment to the clergy, and would have been seen as neglecting or rejecting their clerical status, so they would be anathematized. Now, in terms of how this looked, I actually found a picture that would have been so useful at the time if we had had it when we talked about tonsures the first time. But here is a cartoon. It's historically accurate, but it's a cartoon by the artist who does Scandinavia in the World, which is a great comic series. And this is all of the tonsures for you to look at. Oh, it's got our Celtic favorites, but if you look at these ones on the top, so the man in white is wearing the clerical tonsure. You might recognize the bunny poof. Yeah, he definitely has a bunny poof. I guess it's because of the Widow's Peak meeting where they start shaving, and that is unfortunate. But now at least we have an answer to why a bunny poof. Yeah, it's, it's clearly a style that they are embracing. And then the one, if the man in brown is wearing the monastic tonsure. So there you go. We now have answers and one image that summarizes that whole discussion. I'm not over this like business in the front, naked in the back tonsure. The ginger Celtic man. Yeah. It's a look. It's a look. It makes it makes me think of the Vikings show now because they've definitely co-opted that as a look. I also really hate this pie cut one in the middle of your head yeah that is the worst one i would rather have any of the others besides that one if i have to have a tonsure not that one at least you know you know what to ask for you can ask for a roman tonsure or you know the other one of the celtic in 723 gregory was also involved in a dispute between the bishops of grado and aquileia 
these two bishoprics were often in conflict with one another over jurisdiction and influence in the northeastmost tip of Italy. They had once been a single diocese, but there had been a split in 606 during the whole three chapters kerfuffle, and this is just an ongoing thing. It's going to continue to be an issue. This rivalry was made worse when Gregory sent a pallium to the Patriarch of Aquileia, Serenus. Remember, the pallium is a mark of distinction and usually designates a bishop as a metropolitan bishop. But it seems that this bit of distinction inflated the ego of Serenus, who then assumed he had the right to interfere in the affairs of the Bishop of Grado, called Donatus. Donatus then wrote to the Pope, complaining about Serenus's obstructions, and Gregory wrote back to both bishops, instructing them to submit to each other in humility. He chastises Donatus for complaining about Serenus's pallium, and he warns Serenus to stay out of the jurisdiction of Grado, as that also starts to cross into some bounds of Lombard territory, and it's going to get messy if he keeps doing that. And it seems for a moment that that was going to be settled, but then about two years later, when Bishop Donatus dies, his position is taken over by another bishop, Peter the Bishop of Pola, either through usurpation or election of the people. But this is a big no-no, as you will remember, because once you are consecrated to a bishopric, you are not permitted to take on another. This is still a thing, and people are still making this mistake. When the Pope found out, he immediately deposes Peter from both of the bishoprics of Pola and Grado, and he wrote to the people of Grado to remind them that elections had to be canonical, and bishops could not be consecrated to another bishopric than the one that they already belonged to. In the end, a new bishop, Antoninus, was elected for Grado to settle the area. But then we can move on, because Gregory was also very involved with missionaries. In Rome, he received many pilgrims from England. So many, in fact, that they started to establish themselves as a community, and there starts to be a rising demand for accommodations specifically for them, like churches and schools that actually spoke their language, and that they could go to and actually be in Rome, and learn scripture and learn theology, but still exist as a community of Anglo-Saxon pilgrims. There were also two major English pilgrims who traveled to Rome in Gregory's papacy. The first didn't actually make it, but he's so incredibly important that we need to mention him. This is Colfred, abbot of Monk Wermouth Yarrow Abbey, who also happened to be the guardian who raised one of our favorite sources, the Venerable Bede. Colfred was headed to Rome with the intention to bring Pope Gregory a copy of the famous Codex Amiatinus, which is significant today as it is the oldest surviving codex containing the full text of the Vulgate Bible. And if you want more on the Vulgate, see Damis's episode 39. That's so far. I know. Colfred was a major contributor to the codex, likely assisted by Bede, and he had had this copy made specifically to be dedicated to the Pope. It's really special. It's this really, really big deal. Unfortunately, Colfred died on the way to Rome, and the Codex never made it to Rome. Somehow, not sure how, it ends up in Tuscany instead, and it is currently in the Laurentian Library in Florence, so you can 
can still see it. But another important pilgrim does make it to Rome. In 726, Gregory received Ine, or Ina, the former king of Wessex, who followed the lead of the two English royals we discussed last week and abdicated his throne in order to retire in Rome. Unlike the other two, he doesn't seem to have become a monk, but we do know that the former king made it to Rome with his wife Ethelberg and then served the church by establishing the Scola Saxona, which is a doctrinal school and hostel for the English pilgrims, which is exactly what they had been asking for. He also famously sent missionaries to Germany, which was currently part of Francia. In 716, Gregory received a visit from the Duke of Bavaria, Theodo. And Theodo was a Christian, and he wanted the Pope's support in converting the Bavarian people and establishing a diocese there. So the Pope agreed to send missionaries to support the Duke, and two of these are fairly significant. So we have St. Corbinian and St. Boniface. First, St. Boniface, the apostle of the Germans and patron saint of Germania, was an Anglo-Saxon missionary originally called Winfried. So he had been a missionary to Frisia, where he had worked under Willebrord from before. Remember, Willebrord had established a mission in Utrecht. We discussed this in Sergius's episode, episode 86. I remember his name. <laughs> Well, because it sounds like you're always trying to pronounce it drunk. Wilderborg. Yeah. So he had originally been there. And now this Winfried came on pilgrimage to Rome, hoping for a new mission. So Pope Gregory sends him to Germania, but not before changing his name from Winfried to Boniface in honor of the 4th century martyr Boniface of Tarsus. St. Boniface is fairly substantial, and he's going to come back into our story in future episodes, so for now we're just going to leave him establishing a church in Turingen in Germany. And then we have St. Corbinian, patron saint of Friesing and Germany, who lived his early life in Francia as a hermit. And just like many of the other hermits that we've covered on this show, his piety starts to draw followers to him. These people just want to be left alone. That's exactly it. They just want to be left alone. But all that that does is make people want to come and hang out with them. He's getting frustrated. He's like, this is absolutely not what I want from my life in this. So he decides he's just going to make a pilgrimage to Rome in 722 and then just see what the Pope has to say about this. And so when he gets there, Pope Gregory sees something in him. Presumably the same compelling piety that had drawn followers to him. And Pope Gregory wants Corbinian to use this gift and thought he would be a perfect missionary to send to Bavaria. Whether Corbinian was willing or unwilling to be charged with this mission is still somewhat debatable, but he, he does end up going and he becomes the first bishop of Freising. And this is where I will throw in a... Ponta fact. So Pope Benedict XVI was also the Bishop of Friesing and Munich before becoming Pope. He also, in his papal coat of arms, included the symbol of St. Corbinian, which is a saddled bear. So I'm going to send this to you so you can see the coat of arms. A saddled bear? I'm excited. It is a saddled bear in there. Ooh, look at him with his weird-ass tongue. <laughs> yeah, it is a weird-ass tongue. So. 
you may be asking, why a saddled bear for St. Corbinian? According to his hagiography, while he was on his way to Rome, a bear kills Corbinian's pack horse. And the saint goes, well, you just killed my horse. I command you to carry my load. And so the bear carries all of Corbinian's things to Rome. And then Corbinian lets the bear go. Are there bears in Rome? There are bears in the countryside, I think. Italy bears, let's find out. Marsican brown bear. The last wild bears of Italy's Apennine Mountains, yeah. Marsican brown bears, that's correct. So yes, there are bears, and he he has honored this saint, the first bishop of Friesing, which was the role he held in his papal arms. I guess that video of that little boy in the red shirt with that bear following him was from Italy, so yes. Oh, (laughs) yeah, a while ago. Also, just in case you're wondering why there is a a black head also on the papal coat of arms of Benedict XVI, this is known as the Moor of Friesing, and it becomes a fairly popular thing to have on your coat of arms throughout Europe. It's weird. But again, for for Benedict XVI, he's clearly making a reference back to his time as the Bishop of Friesing. So let's talk about the Lombards, because Gregory's relationship with the Lombards was inconsistent, to say the least. Generally, the relationship between the Pope and the Lombard king was positive and stable, generally. But Gregory never lost sight of the fact that there's this massive threat posed by the Lombards. And there is a very real possibility that they could take over all of Italy and the Byzantine emperor would be able to do, like, almost nothing. I am going to send you another link and you're going to look at this map of how much territory the Lombards currently had in Italy. Okay, so the Lombards have a whole bunch of this stuff. They pretty much have everything that's not Rome and Ravenna and the tiny little bit of area between. And they don't have Sicily. They don't have Sicily, yeah, but Sicily is going to have its own contention. Sicily has its own ideas. Um, It also doesn't have the Slavic area over there. Yeah, so there's like a couple tiny little areas where they don't have, but pretty much all of Italy is Lombards right now. So he's going, hey, if they just decide to close that gap, there's nothing we can do. They gotcha. Yeah, it'll be very alarming. I do like that it's like, ah, here's a road to Ravenna, and that is all we have. Yeah, because everything else had been taken over by Lombards at this point. The Lombards are not wasting time. So shortly after Gregory becomes Pope, he and the Lombard king Liutprand get off to a good start as the king confirmed the donation of the Cottian Alps to the papacy, which had initially been given by the Lombard king Aeropert to Pope John in episode 88. He gave him back the Alps? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, the Cottian Alps, which is a small piece of Alp. However, we have to remember that just because we had a king of the Lombards at this point, it doesn't really represent a whole cohesive unit of the Lombard people. The dukes who controlled the duchies are still operated as relatively independent, particularly when they felt that it suited them. So just because the Pope and the King are getting on well doesn't mean that the Dukes weren't still looking to carve out imperial lands for themselves. And this is what happens when the Duke of Benevento, Romuald II, captured the city of Cumai. 
And this is a particularly troublesome acquisition, as it was very close to Naples. So it cut Rome off from an extremely important port. This is where the Pope had just been with sneaky murder. And Romald was absolutely dead set on keeping his newly won territory, even when the Pope offered significant compensation for him to just give it back. And with no negotiation moving forward, Gregory turned to the Duke of Naples, John I, to retake the city. He goes, look, I can't pay this Lombard guy to give it back, so I will give you the money if you take the city back. Which he does. So, Kumai gets one back. But this wasn't the only area where this was happening, because around the same time the Duke of Spoleto, Ferald, captured Classis, which is the main port of Ravenna. You can see how that one would be particularly problematic, especially for the Exarch. So for this, Gregory was able to use his rapport with the king to have him intervene, and Liutprand, the king, forced Ferald the duke to return the port to the Exarch and withdraw. And shortly after this time, Ferald's own son would depose and monk his father to take his place. And this is something we're going to see a lot where rulers or influential people are routinely just stuck away in monasteries to neutralize their power. And Totalis Rankium has always referred it to just monking someone, so we're going to follow suit with that. It works really well. So do we spell that like punked with an apostrophe and no D? I mean, we could. I feel like that's a TV show in the making for the ancient world. Hey, you got monked. <laughs> Everything has gone well, like Classis is back, Kumai is back, but after being cut off from two ports now in the course of his papacy, and another city gets taken by the Lombards in 725, it's a city that's referred to as Narnia in Latin. Narnia? You can go there via a wardrobes. <laughs> So Gregory begins to see the threat of the Lombards isn't going anywhere, and it's probably more imminent than anyone wanted to believe. So in 721, Gregory appeals to the Byzantine Empire and the Franks, currently under the de facto leadership of the famous Charles Martel, and asks them to intercede to either drive the Lombards out of Italy or at least shore up the defenses between the imperial and Lombard-held locations. Unfortunately for him, in both cases, Gregory received no actual aid because both the Empire and Charles Martel could not or would not come. But remember that name. Is that what am I remembering? Charles Martel? Charles Martel. Oh boy, that is going to change everything. I feel like I know who this is. You probably do. He's kind of like where we're going to start talking about Carolingian people. His son's a big deal. Despite the Pope's best efforts, the region is going to remain unstable. But fortunately for him, the Lombards are not to be his long-standing enemies. When chaos erupts in 726 in Ravenna over something else that we're going to discuss in a minute, the Lombards took advantage and destroyed the Classis port again and took over various spots through the Duchy of Pentapolis, which is sort of under Ravenna, it's five cities under the purview of Ravenna. But this was certainly half opportunism and half defense of the Pope. So when we look at that, just keep that in mind. And in the process, the Lombards, of course, gained a huge amount of territory. 
And here again, the Pope tries to intercede and take part in negotiations with Liutprand and the Exarch to make a peace. Now, unfortunately, about a year later, Liutprand did temporarily engage in a pact with the Exarch Eutychius against the Pope, because in exchange for the Exarch assisting him with something, Liutprand is supposed to go and move against the Pope. So we're going to come back to that as well. But what is most important for the subject of Lombard relations is something that happens between Liutprand and Gregory that's going to change the papacy in a really big way. In 728, Pope Gregory II and King Liutprand met in a town called Sutri. And in the process of negotiation between the two, Liutprand gives the Pope the town of Sutri and its surrounding hill towns, as the Liber Pontificalis tells us, as a donation to the blessed apostles Peter and Paul. So this moment, although fairly small, right, he's just given the Pope a city. That's all that's happened here. But this marks the very first time that papal territory had ever been extended beyond the Duchy of Rome. So it is, in effect, the very, very beginning of the Papal States. This, of course, is not where anything kicks off in a major way. It's more of one of those moments that you look back in hindsight and realize its importance, but this is a moment where we have the inception of territory and temporal power for popes outside of the Duchy of Rome. It's a touchstone moment that we're going to come back to. But now we have to get into the really big stuff. Because two years after Gregory was elected to the papacy, Constantinople got a new emperor. And this is Leo III the Isaurian. This for Constantinople, ended a period of instability caused by short-lived and ever-changing emperors, so it's great for them in that way, but it's also going to bring a period of huge instability and conflict for church affairs. But before we even get into that, before that happens, the emperor doesn't have the greatest start with Rome. In 722, the emperor attempted to increase tax levies on Italy significantly, including on papal patrimonial lands. These taxes were to fund the ongoing conflict with the Muslim caliphates who were raiding into Asia Minor, and basically the empire wanted imperial Italy to contribute to its own defenses, right? Hey, remember when you said that the Lombards were a big threat? Maybe you should help us pay to protect you. It seems reasonable, right? But the end result of this is that taxes in Italy are suddenly doubled. Ooh, protection money? Protection money. And for the papacy, this would essentially mean completely emptying the papal resources, which were otherwise used practical effect in the city. These are where the city is providing food from and ensuring that the city of Rome has adequate grain supplies. Despite the fact that Gregory wants to be loyal to the empire, he simply refuses to pay the increased tax. And then, following his example, so does the rest of Rome. And in that moment, considering there's nothing that the empire has been able to do for a long time, there's nothing the empire could do about this. In order to have the exarch come to Rome to enforce the taxation with an army, he would have to come through the Lombards, so that's likely not going to go well anyways. It was an unenforceable tax, and the Pope went, no, I'm just really not going to do that. Now, 
This is where it gets tricky, because there was an imperial governor in Rome at the time called Marinus, whose title is officially the Duke of Rome, even though clearly the authority in the city resides with the Pope. So it seems like in the wake of the Pope's rebellion, quote-unquote, of refusing to pay taxes, Marinus decided he was going to try and do his job, and so he supports a plot to murder the Pope. It's unclear whether or not he initiates this plan, but he is involved with a set of conspirators, a duke named Basil, a Chartularios named Jordanes, and a subdeacon called John Lurian. There are very few details about this plot, but we do know that when it was discovered, Jordanes and John Lurian were executed, and Basil was monked, and a new governor was sent to Rome. The Liber Pontificalis tells us that Marinus left Rome before this was all found out, and quote, By God's judgment, he was weakened by arthritis, and so withdrew from Rome. And so the Pope was safe, and the taxes remained unpaid, and uh, let's call this assassination attempt number one. Okay. So this is not shaping up to be the greatest or most solid imperial relationship. Because things are about to change in a way that Gregory couldn't ignore. And this is where we get the iconoclasm. The iconoclasm is the major religious conflict over the use of religious icons, or images of Christ, Mary, the saints, and other religious figures. How do you feel about lambs, though? We're going to talk about it. Specifically, the word icon, spelt E-I-K-O-N, or I-C-O-N, refers specifically to small, portable images of the saints that were very, very popular at the time. I mean, they're still very, very popular. Still very, very popular. This, yeah. So this is a really complicated conflict, but the simplest terms is that the iconoclasts argued that the veneration of religious icons is idolatry, which is expressly prohibited in the Second Commandment. Yeah, that's definitely on that list. Don't do that. Yeah. So they're arguing that what's happening in the church is idolatry, and they're saying that all of the icons should be removed and destroyed. Now, those who defend religious imagery, who we will call iconophiles or iconodules, argue that icons are merely symbolic representations to glorify God. So, as St. John of Damasus argues in his On Images, we proclaim him also by our senses on all sides, and we sanctify the noblest sense, which is that of sight. The image is a memorial, just what words are to a listening ear. What a book is to the literate, and an image to the illiterate. The image speaks to the sight as words to the ear, and it brings understanding. They were imaged to serve as recollections, not divine, but leading to divine things by divine power. Either you believe that they're directly worshipping these things, or they're worshipping the idea of that thing. This is a struggle on and off for about a hundred years with some significant, far-reaching consequences, including being one of the major wedges between East and Western churches leading up to the Great Schism of 1054. It's exceptionally important in church history, 
And although it's going to be predominantly an Eastern phenomenon, it's going to have a tremendous impact on the papacy. Here we are going to cover this the best we can, while still acknowledging that this is just the beginning of a major and long-standing conflict. Trying to boil the inception of the iconoclasm down to a single point would be difficult. We know that the hesitation of using representations of religious figures has been a long-standing background sentiment in the East, and according to Timothy Gregory's History of Byzantium, it is present back even to one of our very first sources that we used on this podcast, Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius, that Eusebius. I've been waiting to say that for so long. We haven't had a Eusebius that we could not that Eusebius or that Eusebius at. In a while, it's all been Anastasius. But our Eusebius, that Eusebius, was not a fan of the icons. But most historians agree that this quieter viewpoint started to become louder about 691 or 692 when Emperor Justinian II issued coinage with his face printed on the reverse and Christ's human face on the obverse. This is the first time any coin had depicted Christ in this way, and it immediately received a negative reaction from the Byzantine public. There are a lot of reasons that this was not okay, right? And, and we've already touched on Canon 82 of the Quinisex Council, which is how you feel about lambs. So the distaste for religious depiction extended to the symbolic as well. It's not just about Jesus's face on money, it's also about the lambs. Some historians, like Warren Treadgold in A History of the Byzantine State and Society, also tie the increase in iconoclastic ideals to the growth of the Muslim caliphates, because this means that more Christians were living under Arab rule at this time, and it's fair to say that Islam is notoriously iconoclastic, or maybe better said, icon-averse. They do not like that. He points out that Yazid II, the Umayyad caliph, had banned Christian icons in 721, and that this, quote, may have shamed some Christians with the thought that an infidel was forcing them to do something they should have done by themselves. And it stands to reason that Eastern Christians who were already hesitant about religious depiction may have embraced that shift relatively easily while living under the Muslim caliphate. It's not a terrible stretch, then, that iconoclastic adherents were found in Constantinople and in the Empire, and the most vocal and pronounced of these being two bishops, Constantine of Nicolia and Thomas of Claudiopolis, who were known to refuse to bow to honored images of the saints because they felt that that honor was only due to God. So this is where we start to see how this might be a problem, right? If people are bowing to images of the saints, it starts to feel a little uncomfortable. And now these bishops are saying, hey, we shouldn't do that because we should only bow before God. So these two bishops run afoul of the Patriarch of Constantinople, Germanus, who condemned their actions and defended the icons as representations of the figures that received the actual veneration. The argument against iconoclasm stays pretty consistent, which is just, we, these are to represent things. We're not actually bowing to a statue, we're bowing to the saint. 
But anyways, at some point in all of this, the iconoclastic sentiment reaches Emperor Leo III. We don't know if it was through these bishops, or through his advisor, Bazer, who was a staunch iconoclast, or somewhere else entirely, but either way, he was entirely convinced. Warren Treadgold suggests that with all the setbacks in the beginning of his reign, Leo might have interpreted his misfortune as divine disapproval. And it turns out that he certainly had been presented with many challenges, right? Like, he comes to become emperor, and then he's dealing with Muslim raids in Asia Minor, a raid on Cyprus in 725, a sack of Caesarea in 726, loss of control over Italy and the taxes, and even an eruption of an underwater volcano at Thera, which is modern-day Santorini, which caused significant earthquakes and damage. So his reign has not been off to a good start, and he starts to believe that the hardship was God's anger at the worship of icons in the empire. So in 726, Emperor Leo orders the removal of all religious icons and issues an edict condemning the possession of any icon of any saint. He had the image of Christ on the main entrance of the imperial palace taken down and ordered his officials to remove images across the city. He is going... Straight up and real hard. He's just like, look, clearly God is mad at me. We need to get rid of every single image in the city. This does not go down well in Constantinople. People are outraged, and the term lynched is used for what they did to those officials. We need to be clear, this is by no means a universally accepted change, and the backlash is immediate. And while the people in Constantinople were up in arms, the people in Italy were having even less of this. So the edict arrives from the emperor and is read in Rome, and Pope Gregory immediately rejects it and refuses to enforce the order that would remove holy images or prohibit people from having icons of the saints. And not only does he argue for the symbolic veneration of icons, but he also stood very hard against the emperor's right to make decisions or decrees on dogma at all. This decree also went down just as poorly in Ravenna, which results in the people immediately revolting and denouncing the emperor. And when the exarch tries to enforce the emperor's order, he gets killed, and the armies of Ravenna, Venice, and the Pentapolis all band together against iconoclasm and against any hostile action towards the pope. They even get so riled up that they're prepared to elect their own emperor to defy Emperor Leo, and they're only counseled away from that by Pope Gregory. And that alone kind of represents the difficult position that Gregory's in, right? He wants to be loyal to the empire and to the emperor, but he has to take a strong stance against the emperor's interference in religious matters and he absolutely could not condone this edict. And now he has the physical support to stand against it. It's kind of a difficult position to be in. Now, if we want to give Leo some credit, it doesn't seem as if he made much effort to enforce the edict in Rome, beyond the reading of the edict. He wanted it read, but he didn't really send forces. This might have been intentional, or it could have just been because in Constantinople he was having enough trouble with his new edict. 
But this doesn't mean necessarily that the Pope didn't face some real and threatening consequences for his stance against the Empire. During the revolt, the Duke of Naples, Exiliratus, which is the greatest That's name. That's an amazing name. I would love to be Exiliratus. <laughs> so Exiliratus, who's the Duke of Naples, and his son Hadrian decide to throw their weight in behind the Emperor and use the Italian resistance against iconoclasm as justification to take territory from themselves. They figure they're going to win favor with the emperor by killing the pope. They're like, this is great. We can kill the pope. The emperor's going to feel good about us. We'll win some lands in the process. We don't care about religion. That's a choice. And they loudly profess their plans as they attack Campania and start to move towards Rome where they were met by a Roman mob who knew what they were up to and promptly killed. So we could at least call this assassination attempt number two. Oh, and guess what? This I love. According to the Liber Pontificalis, this Duke's son, Hadrian, the one who's rebelling, is also the Hadrian that was condemned in the Roman Synod for marrying the deaconess Epiphania. Oh. Clearly, he held a grudge. He was anathematized for his wedding, so he's like, let's go kill the Pope. That's cool. In 727, Gregory just convenes a synod in Rome to deal with the emperor's edict. In Theophanes' Chronicle, he says, In elder Rome it was Gregory, that most holy and apostolic man, enthroned next to Peter, the chief apostle, who shone forth in word and deed, and who severed Rome, Italy, and all the western lands from civil and ecclesiastical subjugation to Leo and the latter's domain. This kind of suggests an excommunication, but there's no other sources that agree on that. Only that iconoclasm is being condemned. And with the canons of this council, the Pope sent the emperor two letters in which he defends religious imagery, and in no uncertain terms tells the emperor he's making a massive dogmatic mistake. For ten years, by the grace of God, thou didst walk well and madest no mention of holy images. But now thou sayest they occupy the place of idols, that they who venerate them are idolaters, and thou hast determined on their utter destruction. And thou hast not feared the judgments of God in thus causing scandals to arise, not only in the heart of the faithful, but the unfaithful also. Now why, as king and head of Christians, did you not ask of those who knew and had experience, and from them seek confirmation concerning what kinds of things made with the hand God spake before you stirred up excited and disturbed the common people? He also vehemently condemns the emperor for overstepping his authority in religious matters. And there are some choice quotes, but I will only give you two of them because they're just great. Scripture is ours. Both light and salvation is ours. The holy and inspired fathers and teachers are ours. And this practice, the six holy councils which were in Christ, have handed down to us, and you are received not their testimony. It is necessary we write to you these things gross and unlearned, since you are so unlearned yourself. But nevertheless, they have in them truth and power of God. We exhort you by God to lay aside the pride and arrogance which cleaves so fast to you, and with much humility, give us a candid hearing, and may God convince thee of the truth by means of his word. Doctrines belong not to kings, but chief priests, for we have the mind of Christ. The mind fitted to regulate ecclesiastical affairs is very different from that which deposes matters in the provinces of kingdoms. 
Be assured that a mind so fierce and foolish, and withal so dull in spiritual things as is your own, can never be sufficient to regulate ecclesiastical doctrines. I will now lay before you the difference between the palace and the church, the king and the high priest. And, to top it all off, he reminds the emperor that the pope will be defended if the emperor attempts hostile action. He says, But you think to terrify us and add, I will send to Rome and break down the image of St. Peter. I will bind and carry away Gregory the high priest there as Constans carried away Martin. Now you should reflect that high priests who reside in Rome sit there for the purpose of effecting peace between the East and West, and are, as it were, a middle party wall between them, and thy predecessors were most anxious to keep and preserve this bond of peace. But if you act insolently and send out your threats, we shall not think it necessary to contend with you. The high priests of Rome will depart four and twenty stadia into the country of Campania, and then you may come and pursue the winds. As far as we are concerned, we could be well content that the Lord would grant us to go the same way that Holy Martin went before us. But for the benefit of many, we would yet longer wish to live. The whole West looks towards our humility, and though we may seem to be nothing, yet in us they have the greatest confidence, and in him, namely St. Peter, whose image you threaten to break down and destroy, for him all the princes of the West look upon us as an earthly deity. So you should venture on any rash undertaking. The princes of the West would avenge the cause of those in the East whom thou hast injured. But we entreat you by the Lord from these new and childish proceedings. You know well that you are unable to defend your Roman province, except that it be the city only, on account of its contiguity to the sea. And as we have said before, if the Pope chose to move four and twenty stadia from Rome, he need have no further dread of thee. One thing troubles us. The wild and barbarous nations are becoming civilized, but you are far from civilized, becoming wild and barbarous. In short terms, Gregory is not around. He wants this to be resolved. He wants to honor the emperor, but this is not going Leo's way. He also wrote to the Patriarch of Constantinople to offer his support, and in his letters to the emperor, the Pope defends the Patriarch repeatedly, chastising the emperor for not listening to him. But then the emperor goes and deposes him anyways, right? He's not an iconoclast. And then Gregory will refuse to recognize the iconoclast's successor, Anastasius, or the decrees of the council which banned all depictions of any religious person, including Christ. So, this is not going great, right? This is still kind of blowing up in the emperor's face. So in 728, the emperor sent a new exarch, Eutychius, to Ravenna. And when he arrived in Italy through Naples, the first thing he does is try to rouse up support for a conspiracy to kill the Pope. Why? We don't know if this one was on the emperor's orders or if it was his own approach to deal with the Pope's resistance, but of course... Nobody supported the plan, and Eutychius's messenger, who was sent out to try and find people who would help kill the Pope, was apprehended and would have been killed himself if the Pope had not intervened yet again. So literally, as these people are trying to kill him, he's like, look, just relax, everybody chill out. Through all this, Gregory is still doing his best to support imperial rule in Italy, right? He's still actively counseling the public, as Geoffrey Richards puts it, not to desist in their love or faith for the Roman Empire. I feel like I would not have any faith in the Empire at this point. No, not even a little. 
So Eutychius realizes that the people of Rome are going to continue to support the Pope at any cost. And this is when he turned to the Lombards for that deal we mentioned earlier. It's like, look, I will help you, King Leoprand, bring your dukes under control if you help me make the Pope submit. And Leoprand agrees to this deal. They subjugate the dukes. And Leoprand does march on Rome. But when the king arrives in Rome, the Liber Pontificalis tells us, the pontiff came out to him and was presented to him, and he was able to soothe the king's spirit with his pious urging, so that he prostrated himself at his feet and promised that he would cause no more trouble, and so withdraw. He was steered by his pious advance to such remorse that he removed what he had been wearing and laid it before the apostle's body. Afterwards, a prayer was said, and he begged the pontiff to receive the exarch in concord and peace, which is what happened. And it's indeed what happened. Leopran promised to return to his capital at Pavia if an agreement could be reached between the exarch and the pope. And so, instead of trying to kill the pope, a temporary peace is reached. This is not a hard choice for Gregory, right? He wants to be allies with the exarch. He wants to be allies with Leopran. And he would support them the next year with troops when a leader of revolt would try to pose a threat to the exarch. Fortunately for him, this peace is going to hold until his death. Oh, good. Yes. So he did a good job. He was able to come to peace with all the people who wanted to kill him. And then he dies on February 11th of 731 of natural causes at the age of 62. Couldn't kill him. (laughs) They couldn't. No, he got to go naturally. I love that. He was buried in the atrium of St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed for new St. Peter's with no epitaph surviving. Again. However, something very unusual happens at his funeral. But we're going to discuss that next time. Oh, boo. Hey, I keep you on a cliffhanger for next week. Not a miracle? Well, we're going to get there. He does have a miracle as well. Okay. Putting the cart before the horse. But this is Gregory II, and it is now time to rate the mouthy. Papatum. Infallium. He is widely considered to be one of the greatest popes of the 8th century, and he is certainly the most active pope that we've seen in a very long time. He made a mark on the church before he was pope through his negotiations with Emperor Justinian II over the Quinisex councils. He issued new regulations for marriage. He was part of the evangelization of Germany. We do know, historians do agree, that he implemented the Gregorian chant. But most importantly, and this cannot be overstated, this man resisted iconoclasm. He sure did. He sure did, and he did it so well. He was like, look, I want to be your ally. I want to be loyal. This ain't happening. So it's pretty good. I think he's going to score well here. Yeah, I kind of want to give him like an eight. I think an eight is a very reasonable score for him. Considering his career beforehand and after, I think it's, I think I'm going to match your eight. And he'll get a 16 in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. Nothing. He is not a scandalous man. Too busy. Oh, he's so busy, yeah. Seculari impactum. He took care of the city of Rome. Like, if you lived in Rome, you kind of want to live under this pope. Because he rebuilds the walls of the city. He makes it safe. He made restorations for the city after the flood. And he refuses to pay taxes that would have prevented him from being able to provide for the city's poor and not be able to feed people. So he took care of Rome. 
His influence over the Lombard king allowed him to maintain a generally positive relationship, and and he even was able to sway Liutpran around when he marched up on the gates of Rome. He's like, hey, let's be friends instead. The donation of Sutri is the beginning of the papal states, so this is the inception of papal temporal power. Ooh. He's defending the imperial rule in Italy, even as it's crumbling. Like, he's trying to not get on the wrong side of people. He's uh, sending missionaries to Germany, like we said. And most importantly, and this is a reference to how good of a secular impact he had, the people of Rome were prepared to defend him to the death. And they killed several times to protect him. Yeah, no assassinations for him. Let him die in his bed. He got to die in his bed. It's pretty cool. I mean, I'm proud of him, and I think he's done a great job. So for me, like, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the walls, making sure he can take care of people, this is as good as it's going to get. So for me, it's like a 9 or a 10. I was leaning like 9. Let's give him a 9, because, I mean, he, he didn't have to, like, drive away Attila the Hunt or anything, but it's pretty good. So he'll get an 18 in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. All right, I'm going to send you his face. We actually have a couple really good images. I mean, he's a significant pope, so we have some images to look at here. But here is Pope Gregory II, the mouthy. He looks like he's done. He also looks like he's pursing those lips, which, you know, when I was thinking about Gregory the mouthy, always made me laugh. He looks pretty done, though. He looks like he's fought a long, hard battle, and he's tired. So what's it worth? I'm going to give him, like, a three. Okay, you know, I think that's... You know, I'm going to match you again. I mean, I don't normally do exactly the same score as you, but it is a three. And that will give him six, which calculates out to a 1.5. We have a couple exciting things to look at. If you scroll down on this link I'm going to send you, we actually have a coin of his. Ooh, money. Which is pretty cool, because we don't get that very often. From the stud files. I only recently found this website, so there are some coins for popes that we have covered already, like Vitalian and Agatho and Sergius, but he's down there, and you can see his coins. Yeah, okay. They're kind of... Lumpy. They're not in the greatest of shape, no, but look, they're there. I don't feel like they had good minting capabilities back then. Not great. They didn't have great ones. So here's a couple more images to look at here. This is, again, a pursed lip man. Oh, what's he doing? That guy ate a lemon. He ate a lemon, which works for Mouthy. We also have a sculpture of him that looks nothing like him. Wow. That looks like a zombie. That's the zombie boss of a zombie video game. It kind of does look like a zombie. It's. I get that his eyes are supposed to be turning up towards heaven. But still, it's, it's not working the same. Then we have this image, and it is Gregory II from a 15th century Florentine manuscript. So I'm going to send you this one first. It's not in the best condition. It's quite small. What's he doing? He's doing a blessing in there. <laughs> With those bedroom eyes? Why? <laughs> I mean, it's true. He does have a very intense expression on his face. Now... This is sort of an image that is in a manuscript. It's not super, super well preserved, but someone else decided that they were going to recreate it. So I have quote unquote higher def version. Oh, he's got less bedroom eyes here. He does have less bedroom eyes here. It's kind of all been smooth. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's just, he's a more of a smooth man there, so. He looks very bored with his blessing here. He does. He doesn't have the intensity of the first one, so. It's kind of just lazy by comparison. But they are clearly the same image, so. Tempest Pontificus. May 19th of 715 to February 11th of 731. Pope for 16 years and a score of four. Nice. So, all right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Yes, he is a saint. He has a feast day of February 11th. And that is not all because he also has a miracle. Miracles. The Liber Pontificalis tells us that before the Battle of Toulouse in 720, Pope Gregory sent the Duke of Aquitaine, Odo, three sponges, quote-unquote, which is is a reference to baskets of bread. That's a weird thing to call them, but okay. And the duke kept this gift, and right before the Battle of Toulouse against the Muslim armies in 721, he distributed the bread out to his soldiers. Now, the battle was hard fought, and the pope received reports that 375,000 men had lost their lives in the battle. But of that, only 1,500 of those were Franks, and not a single man that had eaten the bread of Pope Gregory had died or even been wounded. As far as miracles go, that's a pretty good one to be associated with. Sucks to all those people who are like, I'm on a gluten-free diet. Yeah, it probably would suck for them. I mean, but again, out of 375,000 men, only 1,500 of those were Franks, so your odds were pretty good if you were on the French side. He is also not a patron saint, and we can make him the patron saint of whatever we want. But I will point out that when we did a conversation about the Gregorian chant, I mentioned how whenever I put it on, my dogs calm all the way down. So we did discuss making him the patron saint of calming stumpy demons. Yes. But I am perfectly okay making him the patron saint of anything you like. No, I'm fine with the mouth sounds that calm the stumpy demons. Calming stumpy demons it is. I mean, they're gonna need some. But they've been real quiet during this recording. My stumpy demons have not. You gotta give them some Gregorian chant. Maybe that would help him. (laughs) So that brings us to our total score, which is... Wow, he has scored a 40.5. Goodness, okay. Which puts him in ninth place overall. Nice. He's in the top 10 right now. That's amazing. So that makes for an interesting discussion when I ask you if he is papely enough and pizzazzy enough and in, with an impact enough for a papal bull. Usually when we get the after the greats, like Leo, they're not that good, but I'm feeling pretty strong about this one. I agree with you. I think he's definitely won a papal bull with his incredible and very active papacy. So congratulations, Gregory too. You get to fight St. Peter later on to be the popiest pope who ever poked. So that's great. We are going to end with one quick thank you today. I need to thank Connor on Twitter, who helped me with the pronunciation of Monkwermuth Nyaro, because it is spelt some sort of way, and I wanted to be sure. So thank you very much for that. Thank you to all of you who are listening. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify, 
You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as PontifaxPod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. And with that, we can say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.